Hello, friends and listeners. Today's episode is with Adam Robinson. Adam is the famed best-selling author, co-founder of Princeton Review, one of the, the leading advisors to hedge funds, some of the largest family offices and financial institutions in the world. He's also a rated chess master. It is he's he's also just a phenomenally clear thinker with a lot of insight to share on so many aspects of life. And today's episode was so good that we made it a a two-parter. And the first part, we talk about a whole host of things that uh, every I think every listener is going to find fascinating. From red teaming, the concept of red teaming your idea, to a study that and what that means, to a study that he did in 1995 on high school students um, that that showed what is the optimal psychology and confidence level for, in their case, it was for success on tests like the SAT. But uh, this was a really interesting study that's that has oriented his thinking on the right mindset going into any task. And what the data objectively showed was the best mindset of going into a task and what are the factors that contribute to that. We also talk about logic and where logic falls short. Um, a quote that he, that I've been, that is just uh, still rolling around in my head from the episode is, you're not thinking and it's a quote that that he thinks about pretty often, uh, and it goes uh, paraphrasing: "You're not thinking deeply; you're just being logical." And that quote, in many ways, is an antidote to just going with a logical, conventional thought process, but instead saying that's not good enough and and pushing yourself to think deeper. Such good, such a great distinction from. Uh, what we conventionally think is the virtue of logic versus the virtue of truly deeply thinking. Well, you can tell that that Adam is a deep thinker uh, about 15 minutes into this episode. So without further delay, let's get into it. This is part one with Adam Robinson. And this is Below the Line. Adam, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, James, look at that face. Uh-oh. I'm so, uh, my arms are raised. And yeah, look at this face. I actually, uh, hey. for listeners, um, you should check out our new YouTube channel. You can see the sunburn that's across my face. I look like Rafiki has marked me. So um, thank you for not not calling that out. But yes, the face is also smiling because I've been looking forward to this conversation for several weeks. And Ages. Thank you so much for agreeing to do it. And real quick, you're in West Hollywood now. I saw that on your Twitter. I see the the backyard is not Manhattan. When did that that move from Manhattan to to so, LA happen? So I'm going to give you the mini version because sure. it will probably touch on this in a larger sense. Um, I I've spent my I spent my whole adult life in Manhattan mm-hmm. since you know since leaving graduate school and. And I was born in Manhattan, even though I didn't grow up there. And in uh, so I was there, and most of it in Tribeca, mm-hmm. like Lower Manhattan, near, you know. And um, I, huh. in 9/11, literally, I was five blocks from, like, if the tower had fallen over this way, would it? Wow. I wouldn't be talking to you. Mm-hmm. And um, and I and there was a lockdown. Not many people realize this that 
that everyone in Tribeca, the neighborhood, um, was evacuated, forced evacuated. We couldn't stay there. We were forced out of our homes for several months. Like the world went on, but we were forced out of our homes. And even when we were allowed back in, there were checkpoints like Checkpoint Charlie. You had to show proof that you lived in that neighborhood. And, um, and, and that day, 9-11, um, wow, 20, 20 odd years ago, right? Mm. Um, the island of Manhattan was shut down. The bridges, you couldn't cross the bridges. Uh, the, the tunnels were shut. And I, that's so, uh, uh, seared, that's so seared in my mind I made a resolution. I will never be trapped in Manhattan during a lockdown. Mm. And last March, uh, I happened to be in LA. I, I come here a lot. And, uh, and, and it was clear lockdown was imminent, not total like martial law lockdown, but still, you know, again, last year, about a year ago. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I said, Oh, I'm, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be on that island because it's an island, <laughs> literally an island, right? Hmm. So I'm not going to be there. So I've been here ever since, oh, um, and which is very strange. Yeah, how's that, how's that last year well, been? It's strange just because I actually feel nomadic and homeless. Hmm. And I, I say that because that's the world right now. Everyone, wherever you are, there's a kind of unreality that this isn't, even if you've lived wherever you live, it, oh, this isn't home. Mm. You know, all of us have a kind of, um, uh, wow, uh, Wizard of Oz, like this isn't Kansas, mm -hmm. even if you're in Kansas, right? right. And so, so yeah, and I, I think this is a theme we'll keep coming back to, this notion of home, uh, reality, what do we know, where do we, where's bedrock? You know, where, because the ground is shifting under all of us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know people think things are going to get back to normal, but no, we're going to find out today in our, in our conversation. Mm. There is normal, normal was never sustainable. We're not, we're not going back to that. In fact, that normal is what got us here. Mm. We don't want to go back to that. Anyway. So lots yeah. to talk about. So you thought well, that was an incident, like, oh, you're in West Hollywood, you know, but no. So everything is layered. Well, it, in that you mentioned Wizard of Oz. I've heard you also mention in, in conversations that uh, and I think it's usually referring to the market, but that it's a wonder wonderland, Alice in Wonderland type of world. Yes. And you, so and, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, in that vein, how would you describe, you know, you mentioned that a few years ago before COVID. But now huh? it does feel like it is the the um, patterns that that were strange and hard to uh, maybe put together that created a wonderland world in the markets to what you just said. It's a wonderland world for all of us or a wizard, yes. you know, a wizard and awe, uh, uh, kind of the we're not in Kansas anymore type of world for all of us. Did you mean that in a wonderland world in terms of the markets? Oh, I meant that literally. So, no. you know, people yeah, tell forget. Me more. Right, so uh, Alice in Wonderland was written by Lewis Carroll, who was a uh, 
an Oxford Don. And Alice drops down the rabbit hole and discovers this bizarre world. You know, and I know that, you know, this is one of my themes, things that don't make sense, or things that don't make sense, right? One of, mm-hmm. you know, Adam's core themes. That core lenses to understand the world, not, not just to understand it, but to navigate it, right? As whether as entrepreneurs, as, uh, as leaders, as anything. And so she drops down this rabbit hole and, and the inhabitants of that world, perfectly fine, but whoa, the laws of gravity don't work. The uh, syn- laws of syntax don't work. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, she encounters all these bizarre creatures. And, and, you know, first she's small, then she's big and, and she's, bewildered. She got to somehow orient herself within this bizarre world. And my point has always been that that's reality. Wonderland is literally reality. We just don't realize it. And it's a lot like, uh, not to not to switch metaphors, because I want to come back to Wonderland, the Truman Show, mm-hmm. right? You remember that Jim Carrey movie? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And so Jim Carrey is in this uh, fantasy land. He doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. And the, the, the rest of the real world, real world, is watching the show. You know, oh, poor, you know, like kind of an innocent. He doesn't realize he's in a show. But actually, the viewers were in just as bizarre a reality. They just didn't realize it. Right. They, they didn't realize it. And so, so, you know, I, I refer to this in a, in a tweet about a year ago, I said, I said, this, people will look back at this time right now, the last year as the great rupture, a rupture, like eruption, you know, and a rupture with the past and really a waking up to, to, to reality. And, and I would tell you, this is really hard for people to, to grasp unless they've experienced it. But I, I promise you that what people think is going on, and that's you, myself, everybody, is not actually what's going on. Not actually what's going on. And I, I can demonstrate that in really tangible, actually, I know most of your, 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 your audience, these are uh, founders, mm-hmm. right? And, so all of us in our domains, we, we think, well, we may not know the whole world, but within our domain, we got a pretty good grasp of it, right? Right. So this shocked me. Uh, 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 this, uh, uh, this, this, uh, hold on, let me give you that. This was the summer, it's four years ago. It was the summer of 2017, summer of 2017. And, uh, this was just to, so people get a reference point, we're six months into the Trump administration, right? And the market is melting up, just melting up, right? Um, and uh, and I, for those who don't know, I, I advise some of the top hedge fund uh, heads in the world, just on, on, on global markets, through my lens, my, what, my way of looking at markets, which is very, all investors in the world try to make sense of the world, try to, right? Through whatever lens it is, they're trying to make sense of that world. And they, they believe 
that if they make better sense of that world than everybody else, they'll make better investment decisions, right? And it sound, sounds reasonable, right? It's actually kind I- of, but it's a little profound in that you think investing is making money, but to what you're saying and to what I've seen, it is you have to make sense of the world. It's not well, buy low, sell high. It, it is a lot of yeah, sense making. Well, yes and no. We'll come back to that. We'll okay. come back to that. I don't want to layer too many uh, parentheses on this. But mm-hmm. so what I do is I don't try to make sense of the world. I make sense of everybody else's making sense of the world. Mm-hmm. So I front run them. I figure out what they're going to figure out before they figure it out. Right. Anyway, so uh, the market's melting up and a number of my clients, these are, again, very sophisticated investors, top, 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 top tier. And a number of them said, hey, Adam, uh, what's with the euro dollar? Why does it keep going higher? Now, for those of you who don't know, the, the euro dollar is the exchange rate between the U.S. and uh, Europe. That's kind of one of the few key variables in the world. One of the most important, like the dollar, interest rates, you know, it's like for a doctor, it's like your blood pressure, your heart rate, you know, a couple things. And so it's, you really got to understand that. Where's, what's going on with the dollar, right? So this will blow your mind, whether or not you care about markets. And I say this again, just as an illustration. So um, anyway, they said, what's up with the euro? Why does it keep going higher? And I, I had a hunch. So I said, well, well why don't I come in? We'll talk about the, the, the euro dollar. And so I went into, this is separate conversations, but they're all pretty much identical to this. So I said, uh, so I said, so Adam, you know, thanks for coming in. Uh, what's up with the euro dollar? And I said, um, well, I'm going to answer that. But first, I have a couple questions. I said, sure, what? I said, uh, US interest rates, 10 year yields, are they higher or lower year to date? So like January 2nd, 2017 to June, just middle of the year. I said, are they higher or lower year to date? And each of them said, ah, come on, they're higher. Like, what's your point? <laughs> I said, okay. The US interest rates, 10 year yields from the beginning of the year to now, higher, higher. Yeah, come on, Adam. we want to talk about the Euro dollar. I said, okay, we're going to give it. Okay, let's put that aside. Pop quiz number two, question number two. Bund yields, German 10-year yields, are they higher or lower year to date? And they said, lower, Avi, like, uh, which, come on, the Euro dollar. Kind of busy here, Adam. Let's, uh, let's get to the point. I said, okay, um, before we talk about the Euro dollar, could, could you just pull up your Bloomberg? Could just, you you just pull up 10-year yields? Let's just take a look at them. Okay. So they pull up on their Bloomberg, and they look at the screen. Each one of them, they look at the screen. They go, well, well I'll be damned. 10-year uh, yields are, are lower. Remember, they were sure they were higher. I went, yeah. I mean, they were really mystified. Again, this is a key in your economic decision-making. I don't care whether you're in VC or investing or trading or anything. 
You better know the interest rates and where they're headed. These are some of the top guys in the world who knew U.S. interest rates had moved higher. They had moved lower. That's really shocking. And they were so really kind of just mystified. Like, wow, remember before you said Bund yields, German, Eurozone yields have moved lower? You, you still think that? I said, well, yeah. I mean, they must be really low because, you know, I thought, I thought U.S. interest rates are high. They're down. So Bund yields must be much lower. I said, okay, let's pull up the Bund 10-year yields. Let's check that out. And they did. And, um, and now they were really stunned because they looked at the screen and they said, oh, they're higher. I said, yeah. And it, they really were speechless, each one of them, because the world was exactly the opposite of what they knew to be true. They, they knew, they didn't even bother to question it. And, and really at that point, what they should have said to me, by the way, the world was exact, interest rates in the States and in Europe, both were the exact opposite. They thought they were like this, but they were like this, which explained why, it was my hunch, why they were mystified by the Euro dollar. The Euro dollar was doing the opposite of what they knew it had to do, because interest rates, they, they just didn't really, they didn't bother to check. And not one of them, what they should have said, each should have said, Adam, uh, I think we got to end the meeting here. Because uh, if I'm wrong about that, I have no idea what else I'm wrong about, right? If I was wrong about something as basic as that, what else don't I know in the world? You know, um, on this theme of Wonderland, you know, uh, Ray Dalio, uh, yeah. Brilliant investor, yeah. One of the greats, one of the greats. Yeah. Mine, wow, and runs uh, a Bridgewater. On November 6, 2019, he writes a blog piece entitled uh, The World Has Gone Mad and the System is Broken. This is pre-COVID. Think about that, <laughs> right? One of the great investors ever and thinkers about markets, thinkers about life, uh, saying, ah, the world has gone mad. That, that means we're in wonderland. And that was pre-COVID. And yet we, we keep thinking things are gonna go back to normal and, and they're not. And the key thing is for everybody to recognize that. And, you know, I said this, uh, I've said this a number of times, the hardest thing about investing and the hardest thing just really kind of in life is just to see what's going on. Just actually just to see it. Because so many people go, oh, this, we're in one, that doesn't make any sense. They, oh, this is crazy. But, but they don't reorient themselves, right? Think about it. We're in a world, Wonderland. We had... 
we had negative interest rates. You know, I'm sure you studied Econ 101 in college, you know, and, you know, I went to Wharton. I don't ever remember hearing about negative interest rates. And then we had a negative oil prices mm-hmm. last year on April 23rd, right? Mm-hmm. Wow, we had a print and settle price of uh, $36.73 a barrel. Oh, if you had a barrel, they'd pay you to take it away. Please take our oil. We'll pay you to take our oil off our hands. Mm-hmm. And, and what people don't do is they go, wow. They just go, oh, that's bizarre. Well, it's proof we live in Wonderland, right? And, and if that's true, what else don't we know? Right. Really? We just assume those are kind of anomalies, isolated anomalies. Oh no, they're not isolated whatsoever. There are other anomalies that we haven't discovered yet, right? Right, to the the economist, it would be like, they are in wonderland and gravity has flipped if you have negative prices for oil. And and yeah, you either choose, okay, no, the model in my head is right. And this is wonderland, this is a dream, this isn't real, this is an, an anomaly. And then gets couched away as like, no, that's just a strange anomaly. Yeah, also negative interest rates. That's also a strange anomaly, but that doesn't fit the model. So I'm going to choose the model versus uh, to what you're saying, updating the the quote-unquote model so completely that you're basically saying this is a completely different world. And those aren't isolated yeah. anomalies. Those are signs that there is no normal that that we're likely going back to. This is um, everybody needs to update their models. So, you know, there's certain truths, you know, like uh, businesses succeed by satisfying human needs, you know, uh, uh, and, and those that really succeed do so efficiently, you know, and so there's certain truths in life that aren't that, that that's just not going to change. Uh, but to see the world for what it is and and not be blinded by your preconceptions and your models of the world. And you can always tell when your model of the world, when you're not seeing reality, um, is you'll go, huh, that's weird. Uh, you know, or oh, that doesn't make any sense or, okay, yeah, they're negative, but eh, it'll go back to normal soon enough. Hmm. Like, no. They, they don't. And so really, it's so important to see clearly. But that's what we're at. We're in Wonderland. We've always been in Wonderland. <laughs> we just didn't know it. We've always been in the Truman Show. The thing is, the people watching the Truman Show, <laughs> they were in an unreality, too. They just didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, What are some of those truths that, that are the through line from five years ago, 50 years ago, to today? And what are the the untruths that you'd say this is absolutely no longer, you know, part of the model. Oh gosh, we're going to touch on so many of those, you know, today, you know, but since, since your, your, um, your audience is, is primarily, um, you know, founders, entrepreneurs. Um, but of course we're talking about life here, right? This mm-hmm. is way beyond just, um, is, is to, sort of do an inventory of things that were 
true pre-COVID, like true, say in 2019, and if anything, have only accelerated since then. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. Here's the truth. The need for human connection, right? Mm-hmm. Feel connected. And um, so two trends that were in place pre-COVID and have only accelerated now are, uh, this both begin with P, pet ownership and plant ownership. So pre-COVID 2019, like pet ownership was going through the roof. Why? Because people were lonely. Fewer people getting married um, or delaying marriage, right? Fewer feelings of isolation um, and uh, plants. <laughs> I'm going to take care of plants and more staying at home. No, and I, I, you want you want plants around you, you know. Just and uh, and COVID just accelerated that, <laughs> you know. And um, so, you know. Here's something that people should do is um, scenario analysis, scenario planning. So in, um, I think it was 1974, there was an oil embargo and you're too young before your time. One company, one oil company in the world made money during the oil embargo. It was uh, uh, Royal, Royal, Royal Dutch Shell. Why? Why? It was kind of like uh, remember Forrest Gump <laughs> with the Bubba. Uh, you saw the movie, right? Oh, Forrest yes. Gump. Right? Oh, of course. Yeah. Only one, one boat that made it through uh, that storm, right? right? That storm, right? By luck <laughs> uh, or divine providence, but right. And so, um, so one oil company made it through the, the embargo storm, Royal Dutch Shell. And uh, why? Because they had run uh, scenario plannings of, of all these different possibilities. And embargo was one of them. <laughs> so when the embargo hit, they just pulled the, the scenario off their shelf, they had already run through it. They knew exactly what to do, right? Mm. And so, so as entrepreneurs, as investors, um, we should all do scenario, like run through scenarios, especially ones that couldn't possibly happen, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Because we're in Wonderland now, mm-hmm. right? So just pick a scenario. What happens if oil prices go to a thousand? I go, that could never happen, Adam. Okay, then you better run through the scenario, right? right? It reminds me of, I, I built a payments company for five years and we learned in, in the uh, security profession to do red teams. So you build out literally yeah. a team to hack your own system and you just say, okay, uh, you four engineers spend two weeks just trying to hack it, and you're incentivized to hack it, and yeah, okay. and figure out socially hack it. You know, spoof an email to me asking for you know a verification on X or Y, and, 
And and I, the leadership, most of the leadership, one of the, the CTO knew, but the rest of the leadership wouldn't know when this would happen during the year. And and it was uh, so brilliant. In fact, I use it in, I've used it in, in subsequent companies. Um, right now I've got a, a, uh, a little matcha energy shot company, Magic Mind. For listeners, check it out. You're so uh, Santa Monica. I am so Santa Monica. Wait, oh wait, my wait. god, I'm dripping. Is that an is that an it Air is One? actually Air One is trying to. They, so Air One wants to uh, wants to put hey. it in the shelves, but we are still D 2 C, so still e-commerce right now. We haven't gone into retail, but okay. that will be one of the first spots we get into. Which yes, Santa Monica. In my head, I was like, man, that's success. If we can get into Air One, but the the interesting thing was that that planning then went into. Uh, each year we do that for a, a tiny little five person, you know, only one full-time employee, five person company where one of the big things that we had to do this year, and, and obviously the pandemic really stretched the imagination. We were doing everything from like, okay, what if there's a global shortage on cardboard? Yeah. And, yeah. And, ha- yeah. and these are very likely actually, uh, or, or at least in the realm of that's pretty easy to imagine with the spike in e-commerce and probably dwindling, Supplies, but yeah. all, all of those things to exactly what you're saying, then they, they lead to some very creative thinking, but more than that, they lead to, and not, I'm not saying we've done this uh, phenomenal as well as the, the Royal Dutch shell, but it leads to this, this Excel spreadsheet where I can sleep at night knowing that we have 47 different scenarios planned out that could go yeah. wrong that I did not yeah. have in previous companies. So, so, a few things. Um, it was Eisenhower who said in battle, plans are useless, but the act of planning was indispensable. Right. You, you used the phrase uh, red teaming, and I'm sure you've used it before in your podcast and stuff, and most people are familiar, but if you're not, red teaming is when you, you set up sort of a devil's advocate, you know, like they, they, they sort of attack the, the, the premise or the assumptions and and uh, wow, in 1936, uh, DuPont went red teaming one better. <laughs> You'll love this. So uh, uh, the, the CEO of DuPont at the time, I think it was a, still a family member, you know, Bob DuPont the second. Yeah, John Q. DuPont. Thing, you know, mm-hmm. Pierre DuPont, whatever, I, I forget, but, you know, one of the still founding family members. And uh, so DuPont back in the 30s, their t- chief genius was this, this chemist named Carruthers. Basically, he single-handedly, like, <laughs> was coming up with everything. And so one day he runs into the uh, CEO's office and says, I got this new uh, synthetic uh, fiber. Uh, I forget what he called it, some long, you know, chemist type name, like polycarbonate, blah, 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 you know, like, mm-hmm. which they renamed nylon. They had had other synthetic uh, fibers. Um, and, but this was revolutionary, like, because this, this one and the, um, and the CEO realized, oh, my gosh, this is a game changer. Right. What do you think he did? I'm just asking you, what do you think he did? 
You'd imagine. Well, actually, knowing how you do SAT or you you found out the SAT prep <laughs> hack, I will I will not go with the the conventional answer. The conventional answer would be like, this is a game changer. Let's start producing the hell out of it. Um, so what I'm, I imagine he did something something smarter. Well, of course, he did that, and he set up a division, a division, mind you, put Nylon out of business because <laughs> mm. he wanted the next gen. He knew all of his competitors would be doing that. So not only is he like, we're going to use not like this is game changer. And we're already jumping ahead to the replacement for nylon. He didn't wait for a competitor to replace it. Hmm. He set up a whole division, your job, put nylon out of business. <laughs> Cause we want to own nylon and we want the replacement, right? So that's red teaming to a whole nother degree. Right. Don't just critique nylon. Yeah. No, put it out of business. And of course, nylon's still used. Yeah. You know, but but he wanted whatever would come out of that. Right. He wanted his own. He wanted to own that too, not his competitors. Right. So same same thinking, but to a whole nother degree. And um, you know, I don't know, but. Elon Musk is this kind of guy, and just to see, wow, um, he, um, I'm sure Elon Musk internally has teams uh, replace my car, <laughs> just whatever it is, they come up with, because he wants to own that too. I'm, sh I'm sure he's got, you know, skunk work teams doing stuff like that. Well, and, and in today's world, you better, mm -hmm. you got to. Well, you, you mentioned in a recent tweet, you mentioned something along the lines of in chess, there is, uh, it's not just about protection, but it's over protection, protection on yeah. protection. And as a chess master, do you mind walking me through, um, that tactic, tactical, but also metaphorical approach of yeah. over protection okay. and where you've seen in life where, oh, you protected it, but shit, that was under protection. So, so in chess, because because even if you're, you know, super chess genius, grand, like top, top grandmaster, you make mistakes, right? Buffett and Munger have talked a lot about this throughout their, their lives. Munger said uh, famously, it's amazing how much mileage Warren and I have gotten, not by being smart, but just not being stupid. <laughs> It's so hard to be right. It's it's harder not being it's harder not being stupid than it is to be smart. <laughs> and uh, so, because chess masters can't think too far ahead, then they certain key things they overprotect, like they. So in um, in NASA terms, they have uh, different hierarchies of components. Say on on a rocket launch. Some components, if they fail, it's bad. But some they fail, uh, the, the mission is over. They, they, if there's any people up there, they, they're not coming back. And so they have this notion of um, mission critical and, you know, I think it's critical and mission critical, mission critical, like life critical. And so for the, for the just critical, they have a backup system. But for the mission critical, they have a backup for the backup. <laughs> mm -hmm. And sometimes a, a, a triple backup, right? 
So the backup has a backup and the backup's backup has a backup. <laughs> and I imagine they have training with the NASA astronauts for this is what you do if all backups fail. There's at least well, still but at some that training. Point, you know, if that then it, okay, we better not get that far. So speaking okay. of which, so overprotection. You love this story. So a guy Kawasaki, uh, you know, one of the the original uh, marketing director of Apple back in the day, and a great entrepreneur, great uh, mind and uh, and uh, soul, great 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 dude, was telling me, gosh, it's about mm, 20 years ago, 15 20 years ago. Um, he always religiously backed up computer files, right? So he had a. Um, so on his, his desktop, he backed up everything to his laptop, right? Okay, that's protecting, right? And backup system number one, my laptop. Mm -hmm. And then he also backed up to CDs every once in a while. Remember this pre kind of, you know, we had small hard drives that uh, he backed up to a CD. And then he backed up to the web, right? Uh, this wasn't cloud back then, but there was some web backup in the early days, you know, some web backup services. So get this. He said, Adam, uh, he was moving or something, as I recall. So in this car, huh, he had his desktop and his laptop and the CDs in the car. And it, I forget, he either the car got stolen or something, but all of them were lost. Like, don't put your backups together. Right. And the only way, he said, Adam, the only reason I, I saved all my files is I had backed it up to the web, right? So that's overprotection, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, in these days where, wow, globally supply lines, uh-oh, we got real trouble on the horizon, right? It's not on the horizon, it's here. Mm -hmm. And you've got to assume, uh, you know, any key components, you better have a backup. And that backup, you better have a backup, mm -hmm. right? Here's a simple scenario. Uh, you go, well, I, I got a backup. I got a, a factory, you know, in Ohio or whatever. Yeah, I got a backup. Uh, normally I get my, my, uh, my that key component from abroad, but I got a plant in Ohio that's, you know, that you got a backup, right? Okay, how about this scenario? Uh, uh, the overseas supplier you're cut off from, right? So are all the other people in the States who are relying on that. And they may go to that same supplier in Ohio who now can't service everybody. Mm -hmm. And the thing you thought protected you? Oh, yeah. Oh no, you're not protected whatsoever. You know, and, you know, I, I talked about this a couple of days ago, you know, people, when they're investing, trading, you know, they have stop losses, right? So they, probably, they, they bought something at 100, and they put in a stop loss 95, right? To kind of lock in, if it falls more than 5%, that's all I'm willing to take, I'm, I'm out. And uh, of course, as the, the stock goes higher, eh, they can move that stop loss higher, right? Trailing stop. And I think, okay, I'm protected. Maximum loss, 5%. So they wake up one morning and the stock is gapped down 50%. <laughs> and they discover, oh, I, I, I didn't get filled. 
No, no, it gapped down. There was no, there were no buy orders, 5%. <laughs> the next buy order is 50%. You're now looking at a 50% loss. And you thought maximum loss is 5% because I'm protected. You got to overprotect, run th through these scenarios. And, you know, the red teamers even have to think, what couldn't possibly happen? We did not predict uh, the global pandemic. That is for sure. Yeah. And right now, okay, you know. You know, here's a scenario you got to run through. What happens uh, if the vaccines don't protect against the variants, right? Mm -hmm. You got to run through that scenario. It's so it's so easy for public um, government officials to assure us we see no evidence that that's going to happen. Well, as entrepreneurs, we don't <laughs> we don't do that. We don't we don't go. Oh, well, we're sure that that's not going to happen. We have to plan for the eventuality, right? Because we have money on the line or our investors money on the line, right? If we're, you know, and uh, just as fiduciaries, we, we don't take those risks. I mean, we can't assure our investors, oh, I'm for sure that's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, good luck. Well, in my, in my prior founder lives, I remember being so overly optimistic that it's okay. We've jumped through a few hoops. I think we are lucky. I think we are this lucky ship in the storm. And, and that's a one, it's a dangerous thought because I've, I've lived through it. And as soon as you start thinking that you, uh, you aren't the lucky ship anymore, but you actually have some uh, interesting experience within being the uh, co-founder of uh, Princeton Review and in SAT prep, you actually have some interesting data and experience around the best psychology for achievement or the best psychological approach, at least yeah. when, when it comes to the SAT. Do you mind walking listeners through the the different students and the and the right psychologies or the optimal yeah. psychology for yeah. a better score? Absolutely. So this is really fascinating because um, it's counterintuitive. So um, people think it's important to be confident. Yay. No, actually. And I can prove it. So this is a study I did, wow, 25 years ago. And um, which is really, it's really important to share. You'll see. This is um, with implications far beyond everything we're talking about. So um, in New York City, there's a test uh, to get into the specialized science high schools. That's right, yeah, not SAT, but. Right. Yeah, yeah. But, but wait, this also applies to SATs. It okay. applies to testing in general. Okay. So I'm, I'm gonna give you the, the most mind-blowing uh, study I ever did. This is real-time actual students like because it'll, oh, you'll, it goes to actually, you'll see, to entrepreneurial success and such. So, so uh, this occurred in 1995. So, um, again, the specialized science high schools in New York. The most famous is Stuyvesant High School. Uh, on the old SAT scale, uh, Stuyvesant's average SAT is higher than Harvard's. As just to put a wow. put a data point there, mm -hmm. and uh, and you have to take a test to get in. 
So that's the top three, Cybercent and then Bronx High School of Science, and then uh, Brooklyn Tech, the top three. And, uh, but Cybercent is at the top, then Bronx Science and Brooklyn Tech. And um, uh, so to get into those schools, you have to take a test. And uh, 30,000 kids sit for the test. Again, it's one shot on a Saturday morning. <laughs> and if your score is high enough, basically it is rank all the students on the test that one Saturday morning and that the top like 700, they get offered admission to Stuyvesant. The next like thousand in Bronx Science and then Brooklyn Tech. And again, to put like a frame of reference, I, I don't know exactly, but I'm willing to get some, I guess, I don't know, 20 or 30 Nobel laureates from those schools over the years. Like I probably higher than that, but I, mm. that's how top tier it is. And um, so in 1995, um, the Board of Education in New York announced that they were gonna start preparing disadvantaged students, uh, inner city kids for the test, uh, test prep. And I had long since left the test prep field. Right? And so my interest in the Prince Review, I was out of that field. And uh, again, 30,000 kids take the test. Of the kids at Stuyvesant back then, about 80% were Asian, 80%. And by Asian, I include India, Pakistan, you know, um, and by, I, and about 90% were first or second generation in the States. Some were born here, some, some, it even just come over, right? Just, just so 30,000 kids, 30, 35,000 kids sit for a test that only the top 10% are going to get offered admission to one of these schools. And all the kids taking the test are already the, vetted, even have be brilliant, thought, right. already prepped, right? That's, so I, I say that way by background. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, the principal of Stuyvesant should add them, there are prep courses for the Stuy test in Hong Kong, gotta let that land. I'm not talking about Chinatown. I'm saying to get into Stuyvesant, this is 1995, there were courses being offered in Hong Kong. So kids in Hong Kong would prep for the test, fly over for that Saturday morning, take the test and fly back to Hong Kong. And then if they got in, They'd move here, move in with, you know, an uncle or whatever. Who, and, and so that's how competitive it was. It's even more competitive now. Anyway, so, but, so you understand all that. And even if you're not interested in education, you're going to, I'm about to blow your mind. So they wanted to prepare, oh, sorry, 80% Asian, 15% white, but even that was mostly Russian uh, 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 immigrants mm -hmm. and some very, um, you know, upper middle class, you know, families who had prepped their kids to take this test. And, um, and then, uh, and 5% uh, black and Hispanic. And they wanted to boost um, minority enrollment. 
And, uh, and when she told me, Adam, their prep course is in Hong Kong, I thought, oh, that's, wow. If you aren't prepped, you don't have a chance. You just don't have a chance. Okay, again, I, I know I've gone on this. This is, this is very cool I'm about to share. Yeah. So um, it goes to confidence and more. And my confidence is actually, I don't know if you want to be confident. Anyway, you'll see why in a bit. So, so um, I volunteered pro bono to set up the course. Said, I'll, I'll set it up, I'll create the curriculum and I'll train the teachers. I don't have the time to do it, but this is such an important, worthy cause. So I'm, I'm donating my, you know, for the city. Mm -hmm. They said, great. So uh, the first cohort of students, we got two thirds of our kids into one of the schools, which was extraordinary. Now, I had no say in the kids who were selected for the program. Test ran from zero to 100, right? And, I, and you had to get, to get into style, you had to get an 85-ish. Uh, Bronx Science was about 75, Brooklyn Tech 65. And I know people listening to this think, oh, I don't really care. Again, the punt, like you're gonna see what's gonna come up. The average starting score for the kids in the program was in the high 20s we had we had to get them up at least to 65 think about that think mm -hmm. of the golf they like that's so the kids selected for the program were all good kids but they weren't the, the academic superstars that would have been a lot easier to get them mm -hmm. you know anyway so uh so that was extraordinary great success i would say of the students the, we had the first cohort was about 300 kids Wow, so you got and, 200 in. Yeah, yep, yep, which is extraordinary. Now, in the program, uh, which is better than, way better than any, like, they expected, like, way. In the program, there were about 250 of the 300, 250 uh, um, uh, blacks and Hispanics, and about 30 uh, whites and, and Asians. And... Uh, the program was primarily designed to boost. You know, they couldn't, for legal reasons, exclude non-minorities, but just by way of the way they selected by zip codes, that's what happened. Okay, so I was dismayed because when I looked at the numbers of the kids who got in, and again, extraordinary improvements, like from the high 20s, we got two thirds of them above 65. I mean, wow. Um, uh, I, I was dismayed because at comparable starting scores, say starting score 45, whites and Asians improved more within the program than blacks and Hispanics. And that bummed me out. Why, should, why was that happening? I had no idea. Again, at comparable starting scores, whites and Asians improved more. And then, so, um, so the, the program was a success, but the, I, I wanted everybody to improve, right? I, I certainly didn't want, though, the, 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 the groups that we really wanted, really, really wanted to help because they had every disadvantage, right? Uh, uh, to at least to be comparable, like, like great, everybody rise. So, 
So I, I created a, a super long questionnaire. This is where the punchline's coming up of about, oh golly, it was about 150 questions. And some of the questions were demographic and each kid was gonna fill out the survey for the next year. So questions like, how old are you? How many brothers and sisters do you have? I, I had to ask, uh, are you male or female? Because a lot of times you could tell from the name. <laughs> um, and, uh, or I couldn't tell. And uh, uh, where were you born? Where was your mother born? Where's your father born? Your grandparents? Uh, what language do you speak at home? Uh, I had their fifth grade. They, oh, you took the test in seventh grade. Wait, my bad, eighth grade for admission into high school the next year. Uh, I, had, uh, for, I had their fifth grade math and reading scores uh, um, as inputs. And then I asked psychological questions like this, which gets to your, this is so coming back to, I said, um, how do you rate your chances for like for getting into one of the schools, right? Again, confidence. Huh? And this is before also, the program or, or after going through the program? Before. Well, no, after, you know, I got, I got in, right? right. You, yeah, this is before. So the next year, before the program started, I had all the kids. Well, I wasn't actually, I was just an advisor at this point, right? I said I would set up, create the curriculum, set up, create the test. And then I kind of advise it. And um, so, uh, so as to how do your parents rate your chances? And I wish going back, I had been a little more refined uh, in that. I wish I had asked, how, do you, how does your father rate your chances? And how does your mother? But I didn't. And I wish I had, because I, again, I'm going to blow your mind. So then, uh, um, oh, and then, and then how do your teachers rate your chances? So again, some hard uh, quantitative questions. You know, like how old are you? Uh, how many? Where in the pecking order? You know, how many brothers older than you? And less? Like I checked every possible variable, including uh, self-confidence. Right. The number one positive factor for improvement was a father born in another country. Interesting. That was the number one. We're going to come back to that. So just you're going to have lots of questions. You're going to. Yeah. And, uh, and, the, and uh, you wanted your mother to be born here. The kids with that dynamic improve twice as much as the reverse. And again, I'm not talking about little teeny improvements. They, like the whole cohort, like whopping improvements, right? Like improvement on steroids, like, the, mm -hmm. but, the, and uh, so the, Father born in another country, mother born here, improved twice as much as the reverse. A mother born in another country, father born here. And they in turn improved twice as much as um, uh, both parents born here. You really didn't want that. Mm -hmm. This is the mind blowing thing. If your father was born in another country and your mother was born here, race dropped out as a factor. It was not a factor anymore. Right. So if your father was born in another country, mother born here, whether you were black or Asian didn't matter anymore. 
it was really okay and the the also the kids who improved the most by a whopping margin were kids who said i don't think i'm going to get in my parents don't think i'm going to get in but my teachers think i'm going to get in by a whopping margin i'm not talking about you know one percent versus 1.2 percent mm-hmm. you got to let all that land race was not a factor you know we had a president as i recall <laughs> uh parent born in another country right? and uh so why why that uh father born in another country mother born here why was that key because the father is the one who gives you the the drive kind of societal expectations damn straight you're going to pass that test but you needed to have the language skills and you get those from mom which is why you needed your mother fluent in english mm. right and I, again in retrospect if, I, if i'd stayed with that i would have i would have I wish I'd asked, you know, what language is spoken at home? You know, like they, I could have gotten more nuanced. But again, in terms of confidence, the kids who improved the most by a whopping margin were those who said, I don't have a chance. No, I'm, I'm, no way. And my parents don't think I have a chance. But my teachers do. Now, mind you, on some level, they believed they had a chance because they were showing up every Saturday for these train for these these sessions. This was not in school. This is they had to give up an afternoon after school every week and 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 basically their entire summer. So I don't have a chance, but I'm showing up to practice every day. You know, the key thing is to so why was that key? And by the way, I've replicated so fascinating. That, I've replicated that study in other um in other domains. Oh, I had a question at the very beginning of the Prince Review because we did data science, big data analysis from the very beginning, tested everything. It wasn't even called big data then because mm-hmm. we had that. We were trying to squeak out every. Was, you remember that movie um, with Al Pacino, the football movie, Any Given Sunday? Any Given Sunday, right? Yeah. Any given Sunday, and he has that stirring speech. You know, football is a game an inch. Mm-hmm. And uh, those of you who haven't seen that movie, it's a great it's a good, movie. It is a good one. It's a really good one, yeah. And um, and so is life, and so is test improvement. Like, uh, like to get a whopping big every little decimal point improvement is key. And uh, so anyway, I, I, um, again, I was always interested in improvement. Right, that was my job, raise kids' scores. And so, I was always surprised that I could never tell on any individual kid who was going to like, you know, who was going to be the Tom Brady. <laughs> mm-hmm. I could never pick them out and who was going to underperform. So the, the average improvement was extraordinary. Right? On the old SAT scale, wow, our average improvement on a six week course was about 179 points, which is, that's a lot. Yeah. Back on it, right? A lot. The average improvement that they said was possible was 30. Our kids in a six-week course, 6x that. Anyway, so I one of the questions that was hugely predictive was this. I, I created another questionnaire. It's like 20 questions, and two were hugely predictive of improvement. 
Question number one, how do you do on standardized tests like the SAT? Uh, you do better, uh, uh, oh, compared to your uh, classroom test, like ordinary schoolwork. A, you do better because it's high stakes. You, you know, you're a clinch hitter, right? You just come through. B, you do about the same. C, you tend to freak out. High improvers said C, I freak out. Think about that. We'll come back to that in a second. The other question was usually predictive was um, true or false, when in doubt on a question, you should go with your first hunch. And the, and the answer on standardized tests, the right answer is don't go with your first hunch on a standardized test because the test is constructed to hard questions are those by definition that you're, nobody's hunch is going to be right. That's why it's a hard question. It's different from life. Anyway, so the reason that the high improvers, regardless of starting score, said, I freak out. Think about the mindset of the kid who says that in the course. Help me. Mm -hmm. I need to improve. Versus the kid who says, I'm a pretty good test taker. I do better. Oh, then that kid is yeah, he, he's not open to improvement. Mm -hmm. He already thinks he's a good test taker. He may be good, maybe even very good. I just know he's not going to improve. <laughs> that is and, so, so fascinating. So, and I'm mapping it to so many founder yes, conversations sure. in, in, in Silicon Valley um, dynamics. The, the immigrant parent and parents aspect, but also to what you're saying. It's almost like, it's almost like you're saying any confidence is overconfidence. You actually, yeah. So, so that's, um, you know, there's uh, that great study uh, called the Kruger-Dunning effect. I don't know if you know that, the Kruger right to course, you know? And so that was done by a Cornell professor and one of his grad students, the study. And they asked people to rank their, um, on four different scales. One was uh, uh, verbal ability. Mm -hmm. One was sense of humor. Uh, and I forget what the other two were. All right, I'm so glad people value that. Great. Yeah, it's a great study, right? I think it's one of the most cited studies in the last 30 years. I actually right? didn't know the, the components of it. I know that it's, it's more or less said the smarter you are, the more doubts you have, Dunning-Kruger effect. Yes. But, but right. I didn't know the components of it. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm blanking on the guy who said this. He said uh, you know, the problem in the world is that the, the intelligent are full of doubts and the, mm. the, you know, the, the, the stupid are full of confidence. <laughs> You know, that, that is a, that, yeah. a great line in um, in Yeats's brilliant poem, The Second Coming. And he said, the best are full of doubt and the worst uh, full of conviction. Hmm. And, and and so that ability, by the way, to entertain doubt of uh, the philosophy that's called fallibilism, you know, and, and uh, shoot, what's his name? Uh, Feynman, all the great scientists, great, and, and you gotta be full of doubt because that's the way you correct, self-correct. Like, what am I doing wrong? Not what am I, uh, I mean, what am I doing wrong? What can I correct here? Anyway. Well, and, so, and to bring up Ray Dalio again, he, I remember him saying, if you're worried, you don't have to worry. If you aren't worried, you, you should go. be worried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, you know, Andy Grove, 
from Intel, right? Only mm -hmm. the paranoid survive his book, right? And so, you know, if and even Buffett and Munger, you cover your downside, the upside will take care of itself. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, but just cover your downside, make sure that your downside is covered. And, and then, then you get serendipities, you know, if things happen, no, you get to rise as long as you don't fall. Anyway, so uh, the Kruger-Dunning effect is, um, so they ranked them on these, they, they rated people on these various abilities. And then they gave them a test, right? For those like test sense of humor, I forget how they test it, like some jokes or something. And, and uh, then they ranked people and they discovered, whoa, people who rank themselves really high in these abilities, uh, they were really low. <laughs> It was an inverse thing. And so they, they theorized, and it's true, to improve at anything, I don't care what it is, you need to be aware, especially self-aware. And so the people with low abilities lacked self-awareness, which is why they had low abilities, right? They, they did not have verbal ability, and they didn't have the self-awareness to realize that, so they didn't take steps to kind of correct it, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why the high improvers in the program that I back Stuyvesant kids, I'm not gonna get in, no way. You can believe though, like they're working like, you know, you read uh, the stories of any of the greats, I'm thinking now of sports, and they outworked everybody, you know, Bruce Lee, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird. They were there on the court at nine, 10 o'clock at night alone, shooting free throws. Go, hey, Larry, what you doing that for? You're already, you know, one of the immortals. Yeah, how do you think I got here? Mm -hmm. um, so they're, they're, they're always working, always, keenly aware of what what their defects are or flaws and stuff now having said that you're aware you don't want to focus too much on those because what we succeed on our strengths right uh you know like um warren buffett uh, probably not a very good uh, singer <laughs> he's not working on that mm -hmm. he doesn't He's not working on his day trading either. He probably sucks at that because he knows what he does better than anybody. And he stays within that, you know, they, they circle of competence. Mm -hmm. but yeah, you gotta be, but so within your domain, if, if, there's, um, if there's something you don't do well, as long as you stay focused on the things you do do well, really on that, I forget the guy's name. Uh, some years ago, there was a, one of the great uh, Chinese uh, ping pong players uh, had no uh, backhand and he's the best in the world. And everybody knew his backhand sucked. So let's, let's hit him shots that are gonna, but every other shot was so good and he, he's still the best in the world. Cause he, and everybody knew what that weakness was, right? Let's take a moment to show some love to the sponsors that are showering love on this podcast. And if you wanna support the podcast, then you can go and check out our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Dover.com, which is 
Oh, it is the founder's best friend. I am so pumped about this, this company, this service, because it is doing for recruiting what Segment did for analytics. Instead of having to implement XYZ different analytics platforms, Segment was a layer on top of it. Dover is doing that for all of your recruiting tools and all your recruiting needs. So instead of having to learn this applicant tracking software, this 20, 20 different ways of sourcing candidates, this Excel spreadsheet, all of these emails in your inbox going back and forth with different tools that you're using. You just have one brilliant, seamless, simple to use layer on top of all of them. Dover will even it will. And this sounds too good to be true, but it is one of the coolest things I've seen from any recruiting software. It'll even learn your pitch and do your phone screen interviews for you. Go to Dover.com to check it out. Like I said, it is founder a founder's best friend. Every one of my portfolio founders, their biggest need is recruiting. And when you get down to it, it's also the efficiency around recruiting. Not just trying to fill the seats, but doing it in the most efficient way. Because, well, let's face it, you're a founder. you got a million things going on. And Dover is by far the most efficient way of, of recruiting. And Dover is the best tool I've seen in this space. So go check it out, Dover.com. All right, all right, all right. We are also brought to you by NetSwizzle. And I bet you heard about NetSwizzle, but you never heard about it like this. If you are a business owner, you might be making running your business way harder on yourself than necessary. Don't let QuickBooks or spreadsheets across a bunch of different files slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. Stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information that you need when you need it. I once heard a story that at Tesla, Elon Musk said that the one thing that they're going to be better in the world at than anyone else is that people, all of the engineers are going to be able to get the schematics for anything that they're looking for, any information they have within 60 seconds. They can find any information they want within 60 seconds. And the brilliance of that is time is money and people waiting around eight hours for information they need you know the marketing department or the HR department being able to see exactly the information that they need instantaneously well that's what NetSuite does now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle the world's number one cloud business system NetSwizzle gives you visibility and control over your financials HR inventory e-commerce and more everything you need all in one place instantaneously not even 60 seconds. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in revenue, save time and money with NetSuite. Join over 24,000 companies using NetSuite right now. Let NetSuite show you how your business will benefit from what they've got to offer with a free product tour at netsuite.com btl for below the line. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash btl that's netsuite.com slash btl i love this is uh for those listening i'm smiling ear to ear because it's it, this is just a such a fun conversation to have because the the wealth of knowledge is knows no bounds with with you and and the ability to connect to these these various points the one thing i, w- I wanted to ask just to, to tie this at a bow is um, did you notice that in yourself? Did once you knew that fact, were you able to utilize that 
or is that something that is almost transgenerational in the aspect that the other data says, okay, this is, because in, in some ways you could say that data seems to show achievement is, is transgenerational. There is something that happens, you know, that you can't control from zero to 12 to whatever eighth, eighth grade. Um, that's one part of the question. If, if, if you believe that that is true, that it is, this is many, many years, many generations in the making for achievement. No, I, it's such a profound question. I'm going to say the short answer is no. Okay. Because really, really what it reflects is a mindset, right? It's not a race thing. It's not it's even not a cultural thing. If it's, if it was just, one exactly parent, father oh about the minds of 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 someone and everything involved with coming to another country mm -hmm. think about that that says a lot about whoever gets here i don't want to get into the border thing right now but but to pick up and move to another country i know a lot about that person Right, overcoming a lot of hardship. Uh, Several know, attempts, even. I lived in South Africa for a few years, and I knew friends that attempted again and again and again and again to come here, and probably they had family right, members that attempted again. Mm -hmm. Persistence, the willingness to take a chance, all those factors which play into being an entrepreneur, right? And and a, and a calculated chance, right? Think about that. And so that's a mindset, right? That's a, and that gets conveyed to your kids. And, and it's the mindset. And, uh, you know, the, um, there's a, some seminal work done on, uh, which is the, on intelligence and the belief using my words carefully, the belief in intelligence. How important is that to success, academic or otherwise? And I would tell you the belief in intelligence, super dangerous. Because if you believe intelligence, and, and I mean by that, most people think of intelligence as something fixed, right? I don't, but if you think of it as something fixed, like, oh, I'm, I'm born with a certain whatever, IQ, However you want to define it, I'm stuck with that. I personally don't believe that, but, but most people do. And, uh, and then versus, you know, hard work, you know, and, and I say intelligence or talent, right? How much is, is talent key to success in any domain versus hard work, right? And of course you need a certain amount of intelligence, certain amount of talent, right? Certain amount of inborn. But if you believe that's key to success, you're screwed. Because as soon as you encounter difficulty, mm -hmm. and you will, and you believe that you're going to succeed or not on the basis of your talent, right? so your inborn stuff, what you got, you're screwed. Because um, uh-oh, I'm encountering difficulty. That means that my talent, my intelligence is not sufficient. 
Mm-hmm. Plus, if you believe in intelligence and talent, you won't work hard. Because after all, I'm super smart. I don't need to. But if you believe that hard work is the key, then you're going to work your ass off. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, so that's really the key. I don't care what kind of talent you have. If you believe talent is going to get you uh, to the top and keep you there, you're screwed because you're not going to work nearly as hard <laughs> as the guy who goes, I, I, I don't actually have that much talent. I have to work my butt off. You know, you look at Bruce Lee and he was five, seven. He weighed, I don't know, one, 135, 140, solid muscle. Uh, you wouldn't want to get into the ring with him, right? Because he outworked everybody, whatever, I don't know, for sure, the fastest human ever recorded. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, videos of Bruce Lee, slowed down 10X, 10X, mind you. Years ago, and, yeah. Right, you see it's like they slow it down and even at 10, at a 10th speed, right? They, you, like, wait, he, the, how did, I didn't see his hand moves and the guy's down on the floor. And um, so, and all the grades, they, they just outwork everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't care. Anyway, so and, there. And, and, you've, and so, yeah, putting you on the spot, you feel like it is, it is a mindset thing. It's um, total mindset. And, that's, and that gets us to the parenting around, um, around that aspect of I, someone that I recently just hired. He also, in this, in this uh, zip code, kind of blew my mind by saying he was, he was told he was really smart. And, uh, and he learned how, how tenuous that, that can be, be because you're going to meet tasks, exactly like you said, where smarts or intelligence are not going to get you over that obstacle. And, and he wished his parents had told him he was such a hard worker. But he remembers being yeah, the, old, yeah, yeah. the oldest. He was this ordained uh, character. Shout out William for bringing this up. It, literally on day one that he joined the company, he told me this, and oh. uh, just over conversation, and it was brilliant. It changed the way that I talked to my three-year-old daughter. Start telling her that oh. she's a hard worker, oh. and not saying, "Oh, you're so smart." Okay, since you're a proud dad, and and uh, I, I saw the way you smile when you mentioned your daughter, and and. Uh, uh, so talk about mindset and experience, right? And again, it's not just intelligence, just a belief in talent. You know, I don't care. I, I, I would, I'll take anyone in the world on the following debate. I assert that the best in the world at anything were never, can't be the most talented, cannot be. Cause, mm-hmm. cause they, it was in not being the most talented that they had to develop superpowers to kind of compete, right? And um, so your daughter, what's her name? L. L. Oh, sweetie pie. So um, golly. Uh, so back in Tribeca, Tribeca is a very sort of family centric uh, neighborhood in New York, uh, trendy as it is. There was a little uh, kids park on Saturday, Saturday mornings. They used to like to go bring a book. And I got to watch the kids and their families, you know, and just muse on life. And, and so one particular Saturday morning, I noticed uh, this little boy, he must have been 
max five, like four or five. And he was, so that it was a, oh, I'd say it was about uh, this half a football field big, you know, but it had jungle gyms and, uh, you know, nice lawn. You could have a blanket, have a picnic, uh, sandboxes and things for kids and their parents. And, uh, and there was also a perimeter of uh, like a sidewalk perimeter of the, the thing in, in internally. And it was um, fenced in, you know, so it's completely safe for everybody. And uh, this one little boy all on his own, uh, he uh, was walking around the, the perimeter. He had a skateboard under his arm. Like it was bigger than he was. And he's, and he's walking around kind of proudly all by himself. And, uh, and I'm looking around the park because I don't see anyone paying any attention to him. And I'm sure his parents were there. Of course, you're not going to leave you. So, um, so he's walking on kind of proudly with his little skateboard. It wasn't little, it was as big as he was, right? Mm -hmm. And he put it down on the sidewalk. And I'm thinking to myself, he's not going to get on that, is he? And, um, and he did. And again, I'm looking around like, where's his mother or father? When, when are they going to run up to him? So he, he gets on the skateboard and he kind of goes a little back and forth and the skateboard shoots out from under him and he falls to the ground. I'm, I wince, you know, and he's laughing his head off. And he runs after the skateboard, puts it back under his arm and like proudly walks around. And I thought, wow, you can be sure that, that he, his nanny wasn't watching him. No way a nanny would have like, uh-oh, um, would have allowed, oh, if he breaks a, a bone, right. I'm in trouble. Right. You know, and probably a dad, but maybe a mom. Maybe a mom. Yeah, if he breaks an arm, okay. And um, I thought, wow, that's so cool. This kid is fearless. Right. He, he did that several times. I watched each time, kaboom. <laughs> he didn't know how to skateboard, but he thought he was skateboarding, you know, and he's really proud. And, uh, and that same day, I don't know, 15 minutes later-ish, I see a, a family, uh, and I'm getting to you and L. I see a family and they're having a picnic, uh, mom, dad, and their daughter. And the daughter was at that age where she's just learning how to walk, right? And it's, it's on the lawn, very soft lawn. They had a blanket and the little girl kind of got to her feet, you know, how they, and then kind of took a step and then kind of wobbled, you know, because they, <laughs> they really don't know how to do anything. And they, plop, she kind of <laughs> fell back on her diaper, you know, mm -hmm. and, and um, the father immediately ran to her a few feet and put her back up on her feet. And then she took another couple of steps and her father picked her up, put her on her feet. And I thought, wow, you're teaching her literally, you cannot stand on your own two feet. Like the contrast between the boy and the message was, Good luck. You, you are self-reliant, kiddo. Mm -hmm. We're not, 
you know, and that kid you knew, golly, I don't know, he's probably setting records somewhere now. It was a while ago. He's probably 25 or 30 even. And that little girl who was literally being taught, and, and there was no, she just went on the, on the grass. If she had, every kid learns how to walk. We're programmed. Genetically, we can't help ourselves. You get up, try again. But the, that wasn't the message the dad was giving, instilling in his daughter. And I'm sure he was a loving dad. You know? And uh, you'd think the mother would have said, yeah, hey, Charlie, fine. Mm-hmm. Let's enjoy our picnic. It's and like, uh, it's like breaking the uh, the cocoon for the the butterfly. Uh, don't do that because that is going to it won't have the strength to fly. You're right. They won't. You know. And 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 parents are so overprotective of their kids. And it and the kids when when I was growing up, oh man, I I think of the number of things that I did. Like wow, I, I can't believe I'm 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 alive actually that we just did. And um, I was with uh, one of my best friends, I'm not gonna say who, but everybody knows. And, and his son, his son was like on his jungle gym doing stuff and I, I, I was so scared. I thought, oh my gosh, he's gonna like really fall and hurt himself. He's way up, like 15 feet up. But the kind of thing I did as a kid, oh, I don't want, and I, I, my instinct was to like, whoa. And, and his dad, my bestie said, nope, don't go anywhere near him. If he falls, we'll take him to the emergency room. I uh, hope he doesn't, but no, leave him alone. Yeah, I heard Jeff Jeff Bezos say one time he and his his now ex wife, but they they made a decision they'd rather have uh, resourceful kids with nine fingers than uh, than kids with ten that weren't. You know, and, it's so funny. Yeah, that yeah. word resourcefulness. That's the key thing. And resourcefulness is predicated on a mindset that I have enough resources in any given situation to handle it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that's a mindset. It goes back to you know your thing about is it built in or is it acquired? And it's not genetic or or cultural or racial. I mean, certain cultures and things do actually emphasize, for example, an Asian countries have done many studies of this that more belief in hard work and less in intelligence the u.s kind of deifies intelligence so i think oh you gotta be smart yeah you need a certain minimal but not that much actually mm-hmm. uh, so well, you actually have a, a bone to pick against logic um and, uh. and I've heard that it, it, you speak on that before. Do you mind? Do you mind talking about this? And you see, you know, especially as a from a chess master to breaking the code on the SATs to breaking the code in financial markets. Mm-hmm. You you seem. I would say okay. This on paper, this is going to be a very quantitative, logical individual, and yet you'll talk about magic. Uh, and and the magic between people delight uh, serendipity more in person than I would ever expect someone with your acumen to to talk about it. And specifically, uh, you also 
uh, deride hmm. logic a little bit. Do you mind um, telling listeners about a little on your opinion on? Sure. On so, so this is so important to success in life, and that uh, one of my favorite quotes, uh, G.K. Chesterton, who is an essayist and arguably one of the greatest, wittiest essayists ever. He said, truth can be found by logic only after it has first been found without it. <laughs> and, and, and so, heck, Einstein talked about that. He's, he, he said, uh, he, you kind of feel things. He talked actually about his body, his kinesthetic, uh, uh, um, it was a felt sense. Me too, I process more in my body than my head. I, people think I'm logical, I'm actually not. And, and um, so to arrive at things intuitively first, then you can work backwards and construct a logic and go, oh, now I see the logic of that. But the aha moments, like the breakthroughs, like Bezos, uh, you know, creating Amazon or, you know, any, anybody, whether the breakthrough is artistic or scientific or anything first comes about a gift from heaven. You just, you just, whoa, you get some insight and then you work that insight to death. And I, I say that because you can learn to, to cultivate your unconscious and your, and to rely more on that than logic. So there's a dude, shoot, uh, uh, Julian Jane. And just, uh, I, I want to chat about Julian, uh, but I, I, did you have to unlearn that at a certain point? Did you intuitively know that at 14, at 24, at 20? I always knew it. Really? I always knew it. You always had this uh, sensitivity to the intuitive side. Yeah, because all my great ideas popped into my head. Like the, the my original insight for cracking the SAT literally just popped into my head with my very first student. You know, I talked about this with uh, Tim Ferriss. But anyway, so so I've always known this. The, the gifts in my life have always really come out of the blue. Mm. And what I've recently learned the last, wow, last five years is you can, they don't have to come out of the blue. You can engineer them. Mm. And so, uh, so Julian James was a professor of psychology at Princeton, and uh, and uh, he wrote a book. It's going to sound like a mouthful. Uh, the origins of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. It sounds like a mouthful, like an academic mouthful. This audience can it, handle it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is one of the most lucid books ever written. And I read that when it came out, golly, I was a teenager. I, I was still in high school. And um, I read that book and uh, his thesis is mind blowing. So uh, he argued and he had lots of evidence for it. And again, this is a book that is so lucid without any academic jargon whatsoever. Even though bicameral, that just means your bicameral means to, um, to uh, chambers, like your left, right brain. Mm. And uh, so his thesis 
that he argued throughout the book, and again, lots of data for this, is that human consciousness is relatively recent in human history. So right now, um, um, you're conscious that you and I are having a conversation, right? You're probably not conscious in this very second that your hands are together, right? Mm -hmm. Now that I point it out, you go, oh yeah, so they are. Um, we can be, we've all had experiences when we're driving a car for a long period of time, right? We're driving along and all of a sudden we have this experience. Whoa, whoa, I've been driving for the last 15 minutes and I don't remember driving. Oh, I can read Elle a book and be 10 minutes into reading the book and also realize, wait, I'm 10 minutes into working through a problem in my head, but my mouth is moving and I'm reading out the book, but completely, yeah, not there. Yeah. So that startled, like, whoa, I've been driving for the last 15 minutes. In fact, I remember stopping, I remember turning, but I don't remember being conscious of any of it. Or you can be walking down the street with um, holding a bag of groceries. And at no point do you, does the bag, you let go of the bag, right? You're just holding onto it. You're not thinking about it, you just are. So I, I say that as a distinction between being unconscious and conscious, right? And when we're unconscious today, we, it's just a matter of, oh, what kind of, oh yeah, now I'm conscious, right? So he argues that, um, that consciousness is relatively recent in human history. And he said he dated it through his studies and sort of anthropological studies, uh, art, um, uh, ancient uh, uh, writings and such that uh, consciousness developed in human beings 3,000 years ago. You got to let that land because he said, I know what that means. It means I am claiming that the pyramids were built by people who were not conscious. And he said, that's exactly what I'm saying. Think about that. <laughs> They had developed trigonometry, engineering things that we to this day we can't figure out. And they were not conscious at all during the process. When like you a, drive. Like a bear climbing for honey, they were just doing, they were just uh, operating on it. Read the book. I'm just saying, so, so how were they able to do those things, not being aware of what the hell they were doing? Like when you're driving a car, most of the time you're conscious. And even when you realize in those startled moments, whoa, <laughs> well, I've been driving the last 30 minutes. Thank goodness I didn't get into an accident. And uh, so our unconscious abilities are extraordinary. Logic is pretty damned recent in human history, right? It can be traced back to, you know, uh, just after Heraclitus, the philosopher, Greek philosopher, you know, um, say, this is 2000, 2,500 years ago. Hmm. Uh, Damn. And not, not that long. Mm -hmm. And they were doing pretty amazing things without it. And so we, everything in our education system and, and everything we're taught to do is through logic and thinking about things. And um, whereas in fact, the real gifts, the breakthroughs, are done 
through our unconscious and then our conscious minds go, oh, and then we figure it out. Um, Niels Bohr, the great physicist, you know, one of the greatest ever, was chastising a younger colleague. And he said, no, no, you're not thinking, you're just being logical. Hmm. It's easy to be logical. I mean, come on. It's a lot harder to think beyond that. And uh, so, yeah, logic, such as we use, is kind of trivial. You know, some basic syllogisms and, you know, A equals B and B equals C, therefore A equals C kind of thingy. And, you know, various laws of converse relationships and stuff, some basic fallacies. It's all kind of trivial. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas real thinking goes, goes beyond that. And we can train ourselves to do that. And so much of that is unconscious. I just want to underscore that that quote. Um, you're not thinking, you're just being logical. That's a, a profound, profound yeah. uh, shift in perspective on on thinking. On thinking, you know, it, you know, it's you know, people go off to get a an MBA, you know, new case studies and analysis and stuff. Yeah. Uh, that none of those skills are going to give you the breakthroughs. None of them. On quotes, what are, and this is getting into some of the, uh, playing some of your classics, but uh, for this audience, I think they will appreciate it. What are some of the, yeah. four, what are the four quotes you live by? And, and maybe they've grown over the years, but what are some of the quotes that are near and dear to you to the point where you live by them? I, in my life, I've tried to reduce everything myself to a, a few rules, you know, and, and like, here's one. If you're not getting the results you want, change what you're doing. So I'm not going to cite mine, my quotes. I'll cite those of my heroes, you know? And uh, so one of them is, this is so important for your audience, really for everybody. Charlie Munger said, take a simple idea and take it seriously. Mm. That's a secret to success at anything. Take a simple idea and take it seriously. Now, what constitutes a simple idea, in and of itself, Charlie could have written a book. And what taking it seriously means, also he could have written a book on. Like that one statement, you could develop an entire curriculum around right? Find a simple idea, take it seriously. And, and, um, you know, look at any of the great uh, business successes and others, they took a simple idea, or even in sports, in sports achievement, you take a simple idea, and you work it to death. And, 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 and in diving deep, Josh Waitzkin has talked a lot about this, about deep, 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 deep dives into whatever you're doing. And the best in any field, I don't care what the domain is, the gulf between the best and the second best, it's orders of magnitude. (laughs) The gulf between number one in the world and number two in the world, I don't care what the domain is, is more than between number two and number 200. They're just on another planet. And um, there's a, 
a writer, Raymond Chandler, uh, uh, who was, uh, wrote detective novels in the 30s and at the Maltese Falcon and other things. And, and he said that one of his teachers said, um, don't study the first raiders <laughs> and don't study them. You, you'll, you, you won't know how they got their effects. Mm-hmm. Study the second raiders. <laughs> Of course, we, we try to emulate the best, best, but that's one. So quote number one, quote number two. I got to think about this. Um, As you think, that is, uh, although it'll be hard while I talk, but it, that's taking simple ideas seriously is so hard. There's why is there such a so hard? Why is there such an attraction to complexity? It's so funny. So uh, Steve Jobs said, um, you know, simplicity is so hard. But once you get there, you can move mountains, Mm. right? It's so hard because the world is so complex, so many possibilities. And my, anything I've ever said, it's always real simple. And uh, I once, I was asked by a guy, very, 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 very successful dude, in the early days of the Princeton Review. He said, so what's the principle behind the Princeton Review? And I said, easy questions have easy answers and hard questions have hard answers. And he went, oh. He had no idea the thinking that went into that, right? And, you know, people take, and again, like Buffett here, Buffett's two rules of investing. Rule number one, never lose money. Rule number two, never forget rule number one. Now, if I tell you that, or anybody who's ever heard that, they, it sounds pretty simplistic, right? Okay, Warren, thanks a lot for that tip. Never lose money, never forget that. Okay, thanks. And they go on to other things. But mm-hmm. he just gave you the secret to his success. But it's gonna take a lot of thinking to, to unpack that. Right, because to right. everybody goes, well, of course I'm not trying to lose money. I'm trying to make it. So Warren, how do you make money? And he said, I just told you, don't lose it. Now the brilliance behind that, the genius, the utter genius behind that, uh, really I could talk for hours on that one point. And that operative word of never. Right, never. And because uh, if that's your focus, not losing money, it forces you to do many, 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 many things. Just literally as an investor, just hearing that word, never lose money. Yeah. God, that's, that is 20 times the work, um, 20 times the thought. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, um, wow, well, I want to get the other quotes. Yes, okay, yes, please. I'll give you, because I don't know if I can say like the, the foremost, you know, mm-hmm. uh, most, uh, but I'll tell you things that really pop out at me that really made an impression. I was 16 years old. No, I was 17. And I was with Fisher, Bobby Fisher. And we were at Gross Singers, which is an old resort, kind of like, uh, they used to remember the d- movie Dirty Dancing? Yeah. They, yeah. And, uh, and, we, we went out off the property because he was preparing for the Spassky match. The world championships, yeah. We went off property and, and yeah, 72. And we went up property off the, because there's no room service. It was like 1130 at night. And uh, there was a diner. 
it was open like 24 hour little diner. And uh, there was a, um, we went there and, um, and ordered some food and uh, we had cash on us, but only one quarter. We were debating what three songs, because again, this is before your time, they used to have jukeboxes, three songs for a quarter. <laughs> and, and we both loved Motown songs. So really it was just debating which of the three Motown songs we wanted to play. And he stopped and he said, Adam, you're, you're probably learning about my chest right now because you, you can't separate my views on music from my views on chess. And he was not a, not a philosophical guy, ostensibly. And he said that kind of casually. And I, so these many years later, you know, wow. Many, many years later, uh, it, it still sticks with me that, that in any domain, like everything is interlinked. How you, know? you do anything is how you do everything. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And uh, um, another thing, and I cited this on um, on Tim Ferriss. He said, Adam, what's the best piece of advice you ever got? And I just sold my interest in the Prince Review. I was in my early 30s, wondering what do I do next? And and these two, um, two older, very successful, hyper-successful Wall Street guys uh, were giving me advice, what to do next. And, uh, and one of them said, ball bearings, Adam. Go into ball bearings. <laughs> and he saw the look on my face. He said, okay, hear me out. He said, uh, everybody, I'm citing this in particular because of your audience. Please. He said, if you go to Wall Street, like, you know, we know you went to Wharton and everything. You know. He said, well, if you go to Wall Street, he said, uh, all, the, all the great ideas have already been thought of. There are a lot of smart, you know, dudes all fighting it out. Uh, by the way, I, I now, in retrospect, disagree with that comment that all the great ideas have been thought on Wall Street. But anyway, he said, he said but ball bearings, who thinks about ball bearings? Right? Who thinks about number two pencils? <laughs> Nobody. They, they're perfectly fine. So those overlooked areas that are so basic, they have not had their Thomas Edison. But heck, they have not had their Tesla. <laughs> Tesla was the genius. But anyway, they've, they've not had the breakthrough. They've not had their Stephen Jobs, right? Or their Bezos or their Musk. You know, and so, and so uh, th it really stuck with me again. These many years later, um, and uh, what are so? Did you take from that that there are all of these overlooked areas that? Well, there are that, countless overlooked areas. Heck, it doesn't matter. Ice cubes. Pick something that nobody thinks about, and take it seriously. <laughs> What right. did you what what is an example of of that in application in your 30s or in the coming years that that you well, said a uh, actually I went into AI back then you know and this was in the early days of AI no one was in it back then um, really if you had talked to a computer scientist and, and they said hey Adam what you up to I would I said oh I'm really getting into AI now they said, mm -hmm. what the hell are you doing that for and uh, it's because the, the state of technology back then, again, this is before your time, 
the chips, I don't know, were like 100,000 times slower than they are today <laughs> or whatever, 10,000 Moore's law, you know, over the last 25, 30 years. And, uh, and, and so to run neural net models back then, that today you could run in a second, would take a week or longer. <laughs> so the iterative process was really slow. Um, and you know, I disagreed with the the um, with the premise on on basic because then I went into into investing, well, advising, and thinking about markets, just really basic stuff. Um, anyway, so the last thing I want to share, and again, because of your audience and 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 is a conversation I had with my father. And when I was 12, and this is super important, it's not really a quote, it's an anecdote, but it'll go to your founders and everything. And, and I, mind you, what I'm about to share is a memory that I only had about three years ago. Hmm. Three years ago, this memory pops into my head out of nowhere of this time of a conversation I had with my father when I was 12. And this is so important for all your listeners. Uh, and so it was a beautiful spring day yeah. or early summer. It was a weekend. I don't, I can't remember whether it was a Saturday or Sunday. And I was walking with my father and I was 12 and I was telling him how much I hated school. I hated school because you had it. The curriculum was what they told you, right? And, and I went to the best schools ever, but I always hated it. I was never, I hated school always. And because uh, I, I didn't like doing the homework. And sometimes oh, I hate homework. I still tell my wife at 34, I still tell my wife probably once every three months, I'm so glad I don't have to do homework. Yeah. Well, I just didn't. I just flat out refused. And I, you know, whenever they had a test, I would. I would ace it and they'd go, oh, I guess we have to pass the kid. Um, so I was talking about, I was talking about how much I hated school. So my father with whom I could have, really I, I would have philosophical conversations for hours and hours and hours. So he asked me, so what are you going to do about it? So here I am is many years later, what are you gonna do about it? And not, so he was asking me as a philosophical question, Adam, you're in a situation you don't like. You kind of have to be there. So what are you going to do about it? Again, not, it's a philosophical question. Like, so what are you going to do? Like, he didn't mean like do do, but what, what attitude shift? You're going to have to come around this. So again, I only had this memory three years ago. And I, I said in an offhand way, I said, I don't know, maybe one day I'll start my own school. I didn't cite that as one day I'm going to start my own school. I didn't say it like that. I just said, I don't know, maybe one day I'll start my own. It, I was an introvert back then. Like throughout, even by high school, there were people that had never seen me speak. Like I was very introverted. And, uh, and, and I certainly had no back then entrepreneurial 
you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to start a school. I, I had zero interest in that. I didn't like school. It'd be like saying, I hate food. What are you going to do about that? I don't know. Maybe one day I'll start my own restaurant. Well, then that's, there's a lot, wait, wait, wait. there's a I lot in to, there. Yeah. Oh yeah. I want to let that land. And 12 years later, I started the Princeton Review. I don't remember. I, that, so I didn't remember that. I, that I never had a recollection of that, that experience till a few years ago. And I say that I cite that because I'm going to lay down as a truth for men. I don't know if it is true for women, but I know for for guys sometime before the age of 13. You will have declared some profound statement about what you want to do in the world before the age of 13. Why that's so key is 13, you, you've entered puberty, you've discovered girls, you know, you start to do things for other reasons. Mm -hmm. But there's a purity before then of just what speaks to your soul. Yeah. And um, so not by coincidence, Buffett, when he was 12, middle of World War II, and we, we haven't still escaped the Depression, and his father took Warren to New York City on a business trip. Right? Warren grew up in Omaha and uh, uh, goes to the big city. You know? And they go do various things, Empire State Building, probably, I don't know, Statue of Liberty, whatever. The, and his father takes him to the New York Stock Exchange little 12 year old Warren and, and, uh, and Warren revered his father, revered his father. And, and when he left, he told his dad, one day I'm going to become the richest man in the world so that I can give it all away. Think about that little 12 year old Warren. I'm going to become the richest man in the world in order to give it away <laughs> mm -hmm. at, at 12. And I'm sure yourself, if you look back, you may not think of it now. Remember, I just had that memory. There's some experience. You may not have said it to someone. You may have just had the thought that, that uh, it's not about the world and proving anything to the world but just it springs from the innocence of, of childhood. Well, I'm gonna do that. This is who I am. And, uh, and uh, so I, I don't know with women, maybe it's earlier, might, might be earlier. That, I, I don't know, because they, you know, they mature faster than, than dudes. Um, and um, so but I, th I, th I think it's similar. I would lay it down for sure some time and so their relationship to the world and just how they're going to express themselves in the world without trying to prove anything like right by 13 ah, I, I want to become a great swimmer so I get the cheerleaders right so I I'm, yeah it's, there's something very interesting about the, the age at six seven twelve you the world is telling you you belong you're still in incubation you don't need yeah. to worry about anything. 13, 15, 19, 
22, the world's saying like, hey, get your act together because you, you're actually on probation on whether you actually belong in this community yeah. until you get your your act together. But yeah, I mean, this podcast is called Below the Line. And so the beneath the surface thinking that's going through my head is when I was six, seven and eight, I would enter these um, drawing contests. I loved drawing, loved art. Ah. And, I had no idea. And it would you you wouldn't have any idea if if you saw me in my 20s but I didn't I realized when I was 30 that I didn't meet a single artist, professional artist till I was about 24. Growing up in Dallas, Texas, never met a musician. The only artists I knew of were those in the textbooks. Never met a musician, a uh, a painter, yeah. uh, a sculptor, never made a, met a single artist until I was I was 24, a professional artist. Even where I went to college, it was just there was no I think that they had existed maybe a few years older or different circles, but never met them, never had a conversation. And when I was 30, I remember having this kind of reflection. I when I was six, I wanted to be an artist. And in Dallas, Texas, the roles off the shelf were real estate, doctor, lawyer, um, oil and gas. <laughs> And then wildcatter, wildcatter, <laughs> exactly, and yeah. and or number five was entrepreneur, and and that was, and I only really realized this ten years into building things. Oh shit, that was the pragmatic, uh, so socially acceptable version of art that I could pursue, yeah. and that that I really uh, resonated when I would speak with other entrepreneurs when I was fifteen or twenty two and. And it is that artistic creation, this blank canvas and, and something new appearing that I was somehow written in my DNA and I figured out a way towards that um, somehow. Yeah, yeah, it's in your DNA. And and uh, uh, and, that, and even if you go on to other things, I've long since left the education space. and But even now, and I can't help but want to share. <laughs> You know, and, and uh, it's, not, it's not my field, uh, uh, but to share whatever I've learned. And, uh, and, and really everything can be reduced pretty simply down to a handful of rules, you know, and uh, life. It's pretty damn simple, actually. I forget who said, might've might been Bruce Lee, might, forget, might have been this Japanese philosopher Suzuki. He said, um, to the master, there are, sorry, to the beginner, there are many possibilities. To the master, but a few. And, and if you reduce life down to a few kind of simple principles, you just apply those mm -hmm. endlessly. Because life is so compli complicated and complex. It's not the same thought, right? and uh, both complicated and complex and shifting to go back to wonderland. Right. So you need a few orienting principles. Um, Who are the philosophers and, and or spiritual teachers that, that you have found over the years you've drawn the most from or um, drawn towards? Yeah, so um, Buffett and Munger, because mm -hmm. everything they talk about investing is true of life. Mm -hmm. Buffett and Munger, uh, Bruce Lee. <laughs> um, hold on, 
I got, I got, to, I got to think about that. I know there are a few others. It's not dawning on me right now. Uh, I, this is something I really do want you to take some time with because it's. Yeah. So let me. Buckminster Fuller. Um, uh, uh, German philosopher Schopenhauer. Um, what are some things that that drew you towards? Schopenhauer Those, or, or Fuller? Well, like I'll give you my favorite quote of Schopenhauer's. All truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Hmm. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as self-evident. Mm -hmm. And it, with an entrepreneurial venture, <laughs> same thing. I'd say that's true of entrepreneurial ventures. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. Third, well, yeah, we always saw that one coming. <laughs> when Shit, uh, you could look at COVID, a global arresting p pandemic that went through those three stages. Yeah. So, like, you look at Bezos, you know, I remember the early days of Amazon, you're like, books? Are you going to make any money? That's a very low margin business. Then he went into CDs. Hey, Jeff. What are you choosing these low margin businesses for? Because he's building up the infrastructure. <laughs> you know, you look at those guys, uh, Bezos, you know, the great thinkers entrepreneurially. And I'm drifting away from the question you asked me. Please I, I, go I, in I, any I, direction. I'll come back to it. Yeah, yeah, I'll come back to it. Because ours is in parkour, right? We're, in, right. we're free forming here, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so the genius of an entrepreneur is to think of the ecosystem that's around it. So um, Thomas Edison, who, you know, I, I think one of the great crimes in the 20th century was just marginalizing and, and crushing Tesla. You know, one of the great, you know, wow, imagine how far we'd be ahead as a species if Tesla had actually been acknowledged and encouraged instead of crushed by uh, uh, Edison. Anyway, um, but Edison did, he didn't invent the light bulb. He did not. But what he did invent was Con Edison. And, and so Edison realized a light bulb, well, that's really nice, but I got to get these in houses, which means I got to have the houses wired. <laughs> and then I got to get electricity to those houses. The light bulb was trivial. In fact, lots of people had worked on it. And, and, and actually, so he didn't really invent the light bulb whatsoever, but he did invent Con Edison, the ecosystem around it. That, you know, uh, I'll never forgive him for Tesla, but okay, kudos on that, the ecosystem. And you think about uh, Musk, who recognizes the ecosystem. A lot of people don't know, um, like around the electric car. You're gonna have an electric car, you're gonna have to have charging stations. I don't, I don't know if you know this, a lot of people don't, but he threw open his patents. He said, anyone who wants right. to use my patents, can. right? And why? Because he wanted other people in the space so that they would work on creating the charging stations and everything. the demand, yeah, and, and always. But not just the demand it's... for cars, but to increase the infrastructure for it. Right. Now, Bezos also, these are really strategic thinkers, right? They're thinking decades ahead about the infrastructure that's required 
to, to do their things. And on a, in one of the few missteps of Bezos, uh, he was an early backer of the Segway. Remember the Segway? Mm -hmm. And there was a famous meeting with uh, Bezos and uh, shoot, uh, I think even Stephen Jobs was there. A few other guys, a few other titans. And uh, Dean came. It was a Dean. Dean came in, right? Shows the the Segway. And and Bezos was like, "Oh my God, this is great! He's gonna, you know, he rides around in it." Um, oh, cool guy. Uh, um, We're gonna um, leave that in there for the podcast. Uh, yeah, exactly. Blow the line. It's perfect. It's yeah. perfect. So um, he may knock on the window wanting me for something, but I just ignore. So. Um, uh, so Bezos says it's oh this Bezos is amazing. Change everything, but they didn't think about the ecosystem, and the segways are pretty damn cool. And Dean Kamen is one of the really great inventor, amazing dude. And uh, but they didn't think well, how are we actually going to ride these around in cities? Right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to we're not going to have separate lanes. How are we going to? They didn't think that through. You know, and their excitement around the Segway, they forgot Segway is going to occur, you know, devil's in the details, you know, the ecosystem around it, what are sidewalks going to be like, what are, what are traffic laws? How, as, as my mind's kind of uh, thinking through this, is, is uh, I've never thought about this before, the understanding of the ecosystem and the importance placed on it. You could almost, you could easily, not even almost, you could easily say that Musk and his tweeting is to engender this this ecosystem, feed this ecosystem. The yeah, even buying yeah. a 1.5 billion of of Bitcoin um, is almost like let me let me co-opt or graft this other massive ecosystem into what we're trying to do with Tesla and, and SpaceX. Yeah, now, I agree in that respect. Got to be careful a little bit because. His tweets are always self-interested, mm -hmm. you know? Um, well, I was going to, the way I was going to go with that I, is- By the way, I'm a great admirer of him. Well, no, I was, no, no, I- Nothing kudos to him. And, and yeah, he's, he's, I think he's barred from being the chairman of his own company because of his tweets. But the, uh, I did want to, in that line of thinking, do, and you, you're, you don't give stock advice, this isn't stock advice, uh, you know, on a, on a podcast, but- do you take that that perceptivity, that uh, ability to understand the ecosystem into account when you're looking at a company like Tesla and say, yeah, it's an electric car. Yes, it has not produced nearly as many cars as GM or XYZ. This valuation is out of whack, but holy shit, there is a leader that understands this dark energy, um, the dark matter of, of building a company like this. So just so people who may not be familiar with uh, particle physics, dark energy is not like the Sith Lord. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, right. It, it, yeah. So um, or dark energy. right? Yeah. It's, the, so, it's like the 74 percent of the universe we can't see, but there's something there. Goes below the surface. What's going on mm -hmm. below the surface. Right. Mm -hmm which is your theme, right? Thematic theme. And there's always something going on. Just like any of the great quotes, all wisdom, simple. When you hear it, you go, yeah, obvi. Mm -hmm. 
but you don't understand it because you haven't gone below the surface. It takes years to explore below the surface. And so, um, so I don't ever get involved with individual stocks ever. Um, just what I do, my circle of competence is, is um, I would say predicting, but anticipating global trends before they happen. You know, weeks or months before, uh, but like on interest rates or maybe a sector like banking stocks. But I'm not going to get into should you should you buy Goldman or J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't actually care intellectually, mm -hmm. and it's not I can't compete at that level because I I'm not I'm not a, an analyst. Like I I don't care about it. Let other people do that. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't deal with that. But you know, the um, okay, funny meme story. Uh, back in the day on stocks, and got to be careful with memes and tweets. Mm -hmm. So back in the day, this is like um, like eighteen seventy ish, something like that. And Cornelius Vanderbilt was the richest man in America. In today's money he'd be worth about 500 billion. And um, so Cornelius Vanderbilt uh, um, uh, went to the pastor of, uh, I, th I think it was St. Patrick's Cathedral on a Sunday after service and says, uh, buy railroad stocks. And about a month later, railroad stocks had collapsed and uh and uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt went up to the pastor and gave him a check for I don't know like a million bucks and uh and 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 and, and the pastor well well thank you what, what's this for he said uh, for the railroad stocks and and the pastor said well you know Mr. Vanderbilt um I fully I know you gave me you know the best advice, and, and uh, who knows railroad stocks better than you? Because that's one of the ways he made his money, right? And and he said, I, I knew the risks. I'm a big boy. You, know, you, you don't have to make me haul on that. And Vanderbilt said, well, you know, the thing is, I knew you would tell everybody else to buy railroad stocks. I needed to unload my positions. <laughs> I was selling and I needed a lot of buyers. So he tweeted to the pastor, buy railroad stocks because mm. he was selling them. And, uh, you know, the canny uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, there was no SEC back then. Mm. Mm. And um, so you got to be careful with with all public statements, of people who are playing because they're playing games on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not in in no way am I saying that, that that Musk or anybody who tweets you know prominently about stuff is doing so as cannily as Cornelius Vanderbilt uh, and even um, shoot uh, even even uh, Musk has been you know scolded by the SEC and his own board of directors Elon mm -hmm. buddy can't be doing that and uh so so but just to 
you know, you gotta again below the surface. Mm -hmm. What's he saying and what's really going on here? Gotta view the context. And we, you know, talk about well, not here, but like second order thinking, which is going below the surface, right? Get a simple statement, never lose money. Now go below the surface and think that through. Take it seriously, right? To go back to Munger's great quote. Mm -hmm. And um, and by the way, that's what you do, right? That's below the surface. Simple idea. <laughs> that's the surface. Now below. Now you gotta. That's where the gold is, because no one drops below the surface. Well, then no, I'll, just... and I'll I'll tell listeners the best advice. I I think in venture investing, it's it's why I say it's twenty times the work to never lose your money in venture investing. Um, mm -hmm. But the best advice I ever got in venture investing was. Uh, Peter Thiel telling me over lunch one time, he said the biggest mistake I ever made investing was uh, missing out on Facebook Series B. And I decided not to invest because I thought, okay, I'm an early stage investor. So that's where, where I invest. Someone else will do the B, C, and and so on. And uh, and he thought the valuation was, was too high. And he realized mm -hmm. venture investing is is all about capital density. And that's like his that sim simplifying statement. It is all about capital density in the winners. So that's the second part. Well, but you know, that wasn't a mistake. Not a mistake whatsoever. He's sticking within his circle of competence. That's where his edge is. It's well, to, it, it's at that time. But he did, he did the math. He said, I can make $100 million bets. 20 in a row go south, go to nothing, and it would not come close to what I missed out on by not doing the Series B of but Facebook. Just with respect to Peter, uh, no, I'm going to disagree. All right, know? yeah. So, so um, Munger and Buffett have never used leverage. And, uh, right, they grew up in the Depression. We're not leverage. Remember, never lose money. Mm -hmm. And leverage increases the odds you're going to lose money. So, so um, one day, just just he was curious. Uh, Munger said he wanted to see what Buffett and he would be worth today if they had put on just basic leverage, the kind of leverage everybody uses and doesn't even think about. Not over leverage, just basic kind of leverage. And he, he estimated they would be worth 5x what they are today. 5x if they'd use leverage, but they never did. And that wasn't a mistake. They mm -hmm. stuck to their process, right? Yeah, you just stick to your process. If you look back on things, any number of things you go, oh, that was a mistake. No, it would have been a mistake because if you went outside your circle of competence, if you violated a rule, well, you probably would have done that lots. Yeah, you missed out on that, and you missed out on a lot of huge losses. Mm -hmm. All he sees is what he missed out on. Mm -hmm. He doesn't see how many, you know, catastrophes didn't get involved in because he's stuck, stuck to his, you know, his domain. All right, listeners, that was part one with Adam. Next week, we're going to drop part two. And in part two, we cover all kinds of things like his his interaction with Bobby Fischer as one of his close friends for many years. I had no idea how famous Bobby Fischer, the chess master was, but during the height of the cold war and during the height of him being the best chess, the best chess player in, in the entire 
world. Uh, he was the most famous American. Um, so we talk about that. We talk about chess uh, against the Russians, all of that and more with the brilliant mind that is Adam Robinson. <laughs>